we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, as you know. And uh, this little series of slides you've seen before, that um, this second half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through uh, 6, are really about godly living. And my thesis for the book of Ephesians is that uh, sound doctrine produces godly living. And we're in the third of the five parts of chapters five through six, 4 through 6, the walk of love. And uh, I'm just repeating, but I think it's important to do that. I've chosen to outline this last part of the book, last half of the book, around the term walk. And each time Paul uses the term walk, he's focusing on a different characteristic of our living and lifestyle. This is the walk of love. And we've already started this um, last time, I believe, but we didn't finish it. So I'm going to quickly review. If you look at verse 1, uh, be imitators of God as his beloved children, as beloved children. And I just want to remind you how powerfully important that is, how profoundly important, how deeply important that is. We are God's children. And you've heard me say before, and we've talked about this a number of times in various books, before you put your faith in Christ and became a Christ follower, your relationship with God was <clears throat> judge to condemn sinner. You come to faith in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You now become a member of his family. He's your heavenly father. You are his child. So in a very real sense, the apostle Paul is saying, imitate your father as his children. And that, that to me gives even more of a piercing, uh, set of, of, of ideas and content and how profound it is when you look at it in that way. And the way to do that, verse 2, is walk in love. Now, I'll repeat this. Uh, the word love there is agape, A-G-A-P-E, and that is that self-sacrificing, other-centered love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And so the measure of that kind of love is Jesus. The as there's comparative as, analogical as. As Jesus gave himself for us, we are to give ourselves in love to others and to God. And then he adds, uh, the Apostle Paul adds, uh, something that's unusual, but a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And he's using their Old Testament language, Jewish sacrificial language. You see that in the book of Leviticus, about a number of the offerings in, in the ceremonial uh, liturgy of ancient Israel. That is often a very fragrant, pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And so what Paul is saying is to walk in love, a lifestyle of love, serving, giving yourself, an other-centered approach to others is pleasing to the Lord. It's like the Jewish sacrifices, fragrant offering, sacrifice to him. It's pleasing to him. And I want to just remind you of something that is, I think, always important to remember. You and I have a relationship with God that is now defined by the new covenant, not the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And the new covenant does have a high priest. It's Jesus. He's our high priest. It does have a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it does have a sacrifice. We are to present ourselves as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
And here's another illustration of that same idea. As we give ourselves to God, we then present ourselves, in effect, as a sacrifice to him. Now, obviously, that's figurative, that's metaphorical, but you get the point. So I just wanted to make sure that this, this, these first two verses, which introduce this theme, they're not just nice, you know, high-sounding, spiritually mystical verbiage. This, this needs to be really understood. We're imitating our Heavenly Father by walking in love, and the measure of that love is Christ. And as we walk in love, that's a very pleasing thing to our Heavenly Father. So you, you then would think that the Apostle Paul would elaborate on this. He would talk more about the nature of this love. He would talk more about the specific aspects and dimensions, maybe using illustrations. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, he does something that he rarely does. He gives us a negative contrast. This is not what it looks like. These are not characteristics of other-centered, self-sacrificial, agape love. And so the very first word of verse 3 is a strong adversative, but, so in contrast, you see these vices, and I'm choosing to word, use that term vice rather than just sin, but in, instead of ethical virtues, these become pernicious vices. And it, the, a virtue is what God represents in his attributes that characterize him and therefore begin to characterize us. In contrast to that, because one of the main virtues is love, are these vices. These are the opposite. These are indistinct, diametrically opposed opposites to what love is. And he chooses a series of them, and I will talk about each one. First, sexual immorality. Now, the, the Greek term for immorality there is porneia. I believe I mentioned this last week, a very broad term. As a matter of fact, porneia is used of every sexual behavior outside of heterosexual marriage. Every sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is considered porneia. And so he chooses to use a very broad term, but let's think about that for just a moment. There is probably nothing, nothing that illustrates the opposite of agape love than selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent sexual immorality. And so it seems to me that this would be a powerful illustration of an opposite of the walk of love that God is calling us to as we imitate him as our Heavenly Father, is sexual immorality, porneia. In the Greco-Roman world, remember he's writing to Ephesus, one of the major, major Greco-Roman cities of the Eastern Mediterranean world. It was the the doorway to, to the Roman province of Asia, sexual immorality. Oh my. I mean, we have a lot of extra biblical material about Ephesus. It was one of the most grossly immoral cities in the, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire. And so when Paul says this as a contrast to love, 
the Ephesian church would have understood what he means. Their, their city in which their churches, there, there were several house churches in Ephesus by this time, that they, they were in the midst of a cesspool. And so he's saying that is not the walk of love. And remember, too, I would say probably almost all of the people who were in the churches there at Ephesus had come out of that lifestyle. Many of them were Greco-Roman people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and now they're being transformed by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit who indwells them, by this whole new lifestyle to which they're being called. We just studied that in Ephesians chapter 4 last week. So this would have hit home. I know what he's talking about. And for you and me in the 21st century in the United States of America, we live in a culture that is just saturated with porneia. It is everywhere. It's how products are sold. It's how entertainment is fashioned and, and formulated. It's in the music lyrics of so much of, of contemporary music, and it is just everywhere. So you and I, yeah, I understand what that means. The epitome of selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-indulgence is porneia. And then he adds, and all impurity. And I, it's, the Greek word is pan, but it's every kind of impurity. He doesn't list these, but all, every kind of moral defilement. It isn't just sexual impurity. That's covered by porneia. This is all, every imaginable kind of impurity impurity of motives, impurity of actions, lack of integrity, dishonesty. I mean, everything you can kind of itemize as a vice would fit in to that idea. Moral defilement. Everything, or maybe say it this way, anything that morally defiles us fits into that, that term. And then he adds a third one, or covetousness which must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. I just fleshed out a little bit. Named even mentioned, it can't be mentioned among you, as is proper. The reputation of the saints, we're not like that. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Of all of the motivations that Paul could list, he chooses covetousness. Now, Perhaps, in some of your minds, you are recalling, well, that's the Tenth Commandment in the Decalogue. That's the Tenth Commandment in God's moral law that he gave to Israel. And if you've ever studied that, if you've ever studied the Decalogue, ever studied the Ten Commandments, I have, I've written on it, I believe it's an ethical formulation. It is the, it reflects the moral character of God. And so do not covet. And then if you go back and look in Exodus 20, Moses itemizes a whole variety of examples. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's land. Don't covet your neighbor's sheep. Don't covet your neighbor's oxen, etc., etc. And it's fascinating because of all the motivations that he could choose, Paul chooses this one. 
And in the next verse, he's actually going to call covetousness, actually in verse 5, he's going to call covetousness idolatry. Now, let's think a little bit about that. Because to covet something, and I, I don't think I need to define that, do I? You know what I mean by that. You know what the Bible means by that. To covet something is to... It's not just a superficial, shallow, I want something I don't have. You, you are overwhelmingly almost consumed by the desire to have your neighbor's car, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's portfolio, your neighbor's wife, uh, you know, all of these extreme things, but you covet. You passionately, in an almost all-consuming manner, want something that is not yours. Let's put it in another context. You want something that God has not stewarded you with, that God has not trusted you with. Because what the Bible says to us very clearly is that when when let's say for let's just some examples in our lives when you own a home that means you are to look at this it belongs to god and he has stewarded this to you he has trusted this to you he expects you to manage it well he expects you to take care of it he expects you to to oversee it in an honorable way because he has trusted it to you to covet something means you covet something that God has given to somebody else. And so when you are coveting whatever that is, you are saying something about God. You're, you're saying something about your walk with God or your lack of it. And you are, in effect, saying, I am not content with what God has given me. I am not satisfied with what God has given me. And so when you start to look at it, which I think is the importance of commandment number 10 and the importance of this, this vice of being covetousness, of being covetous, or the noun covetousness, is a powerful indicator. You're not satisfied with what the Lord has given you. You're not content with your station in life, and you want something that's not yours, and it becomes consuming, which is why Paul, later on in verse 5, refers to it as a form of idolatry. It has taken the place of God in your life. You're not content. You're not satisfied. You're not pleased with what God has given you, and therefore, you will try anything you can to get what God has not given to you. And so I hope I've explained that well, because it is curious that he chooses the term, or I should say the motivation of covetousness. Let me stop there before we look at, at verse four. Are there any questions? I've spent yeah. amount of time on this. Yeah. Um, I, does covetousness uh, include both the desire and the action Yes. Or is so it's the idea that I want my neighbor's whatever 
and I don't want you to have it. Does it go to that extent? I don't want you to have it. I want to have it instead of you. Or is that just saying, gosh, that's a really nice whatever. I want one of those, too. Well, now that the last thing you're saying is a little more superficial and more shallow. I mean, all of us, perhaps, to one degree or another, said, boy, that is really a nice car. I'd kind of like to have it. I always dream of a Royal Blue 911 Porsche, uh-huh. turbo. Well, you know, I really don't covet somebody having it. It's a nice car, but I mean, it's not even realistic. But it's that if I, I you know, I don't live in that kind of a neighborhood, but if I lived in a neighborhood where there are a lot of Porsches and I don't have a Porsche and I'd look at it, oh, man. And then I start to covet. I, and my, my covetousness turns into a longing, passionate, overwhelming burdensome jealousy to where I will do anything I can to get it, where it becomes all consuming. Oh my goodness. Then you've moved so, from just a fleeting thought. Well, there's a nice car. I'd like to have that too. Uh-huh. I want that. It doesn't, I want what you have. Right. And so and the he, idea is the desire is one side of it, right? Yeah. Do I, do I want to take it away from you as part of that um, thing? Or is it just, I'm obsessed with something that somebody else has, and I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses. It can be that. It can be that as well. Absolutely. So it can be either or that. Yeah. So and that's when you, both. When, you, when you really study the Tenth Commandment, and you study how that is used throughout the Scriptures, I have generalized it when, when I wrote uh, a book on ethics. I've generalized that into this principle. God, God desires of us purity of motives. Uh-huh. And we all are going to struggle with impurity of motives. But remember, go back, and we've talked about this before, James chapter 1, verse 13. When James lays out for us the development of sin, it begins with a thought. That is not a sin. It becomes a desire. To a degree, that's not a sin. What is it? sin is what you do with it, the action. The action is the sin. But what, what the Tenth Commandment is warning and what Paul is warning, covetousness is a serious, very serious desire because it leads to the action of sin. And so the purity of motives is what God is interested in. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is our fullest account of that. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Lord Jesus is far more interested in what's going on in our mind and our heart, as well as in our actions. And you've heard, I mean, you've read that. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty. Well, that is a much different standard than, murder. than just the outward act of premeditated murder. But that is what the Tenth Commandment is interested in. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look with lust upon a woman, you are guilty. My, oh, my, what a much higher standard of understanding what righteousness and holiness to God really means. And so, again, in the, in the Greco-Roman world to whom Paul is writing this letter, covetousness was a very, very serious issue. I mean, there are a lot of nefarious things going on in the Roman Greco-Roman world, whether it was in the 
among the emperors and Caesars, or whether it's among the generals in the army, or whether it's among the centurions in the army, or whether it's, I mean, it just pervaded the society. And that's why, as you know, biblical Christianity is countercultural. It goes against everything the culture stands for, including motives. And then he adds in verse 4, he digs a little deeper. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And so Paul decides to address something that the Bible has a lot to say about. Uh, this is in a lot of the books of the Bible. It's a major part of the Proverbs. It's two major sections in the epistle of James. Jesus talks about it. It's what comes out of our mouth, the words that we use. And he's saying these things that he's itemizing in verse 4 do not reflect love. No filthiness, broad term. That the you know the the profanity and ugliness of words that people can just rattle off when they get in a frustrating or angry situation. Foolish talk. It's great translation. Uh, you know the, the talk that is not so much silly but utterly ridiculous conversation. Ridiculous talk. Ridiculous things you're saying. And then the crude joking. So you go from the gross profanity that's associated with filthiness of talk to foolish talk, the silly, inane, dumb, waste of time time talk to the crude joking where, I mean, you know, people sharing jokes is, goes all the way back to the first recorded cuneiform tablets in ancient Sumer. We have, we have examples of the jokes they told each other. But this is the crude, demeaning joking. It, it often is, a, is about a, a particular person, and it's crude and unkind and hurtful in what you're saying. Paul says they're out of place. That's not love. Instead, here's Paul, Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24, put off something, put on something in its place, and he says that to be thanksgiving. Now, let's think about that for a minute. I think what he really means by that, by thanksgiving, is a thankful, grateful spirit. So instead of, instead of the, the, the crude joking or the, the silly, stupid, inane, foolish talk, and the horrible things that we can say in profanity, etc. A thankful spirit, where you're thanking, thanking the person for something they did, thanking the Lord for the day He's created, thanking the Lord for the rain, thanking the Lord for the spring flowers, thanking the Lord for your job. Aren't you thankful that God has done this for today? Aren't you thankful? And so the conversation, instead of all of these quite horrible things that are unsettling for us as believers when we're engaged in that kind of conversation. Our, our spirit, the spirit of our heart is reflected in our language. A thankful, grateful spirit. Does that mean we don't tell jokes? No, no, that's not what it means. Humor, I mean, goodness, God created us. We're, humor is a part of, 
of our personalities. It's, it's that thankful, grateful spirit. And so a thankful, grateful spirit means I really don't, I really don't say anything unkind about that person. I don't drag that person's name through the mud. Thanksgiving, a, thanksgiving, a spirit of thanksgiving and a grateful spirit reflects contentment, reflects satisfaction, reflects trust, all directed at God. And a walk of love has language like that. Then Paul, and this verse 5 is a little bit difficult. I don't think it's that difficult, but I'll show you what I do because I have a separate slide on it. He gives a reason now. He's talked about all these things, these vices, which are the diametric opposite of walking in love. Four, it's a gar of reason. You could even translate it because. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually impure, immoral or impure or who's covetous, which is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, you have a copy of this in, in the slide uh, packet that was sent out to you last week. This was added, so if, if you want a copy of it, you already have it if you, if you saved that email. So what I want you to do is look with me at the thought of these verses. You have an inheritance. You and I, as Christ followers, have an inheritance. How would you describe that inheritance? We are joint heirs with Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3 and 4. He talks about that in the book of Romans. And we will rule and reign with Jesus in our resurrected, glorified bodies in the coming kingdom. Okay, that's a fact of Scripture. That is a fact that you can bank on. And so that inheritance is what God has promised for you in the coming kingdom. That cannot be taken away from you. That is part of your, and that's why Paul chooses to use it around the term inheritance. And he talks a lot about that in his writings. Second part of the argument Paul is making. We know that unbelievers who are characterized by the sins, these vices that we study in verses 3, 4, and 5, have no inheritance in Christ's kingdom. You will not see these sins practiced in the coming kingdom. You're not going to see when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom and rules and reigns, and you and I, who come back with the Lord, we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. You're not going to see the kingdom of Christ characterized. You're going to see the kingdom of Christ characterized by love, the benevolent love of Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because that's true, you have no business living as they do now. And so the future promised inheritance should motivate you in how you're going to live now. That's a major premise I see in the Bible. Future promises that God's made to us should affect how we live now. That's what Paul is arguing. Now listen, he's saying. I'll go back now to the text. Listen, he's saying. You know what I've taught you about the kingdom? You know the inheritance you have in the kingdom? And you know that these vices will not be practiced in the kingdom. 
So knock it off. You should not be practicing these vices. Now, therefore, that's the challenge, as we have been studying, to adopt a new walk. And you're going back to these, a walk of unity, of holiness, of love. We're going to just be studying in a minute light, and in a very long section, the walk of wisdom, which we'll get to. God is calling us to a new walk. And all, as I tried to explain a little bit, these vices in 3, 4, and 5 were endemic, were, were systemic, were pervasive in the Greco-Roman world. And in, in a very real sense, just like they are pervasive in our world today, in our culture today, they should not characterize kingdom citizens. They should not characterize the walk of love. And then he, he makes a very important point in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't think that these are insignificant to God. They're not insignificant to God. In his sanctification work, now you remember all that that means. We've talked a lot about that in this class. But in God's sanctifying work, these things matter to him. And so don't let anyone deceive you. This isn't important. It doesn't matter how you live. You're free in Christ. God's grace is, is overcoming all of this. It isn't that important. Some of these things are, my, oh, yes, they are. Because God calls people to account. And he uses the little phrase, sons of disobedience. He's grabbing that out of the Old Testament. That was characterized by, well, no, I shouldn't put it this way. Often God used that phrase when he spoke of his people. That the, not, my people are acting like the sons of disobedience, like the people all around them. They're acting like the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites or the Phoenicians or whatever. And God, and God would not let his people do that. He would discipline his people. And that is a major theme as our Heavenly Father, God disciplined. So he's using those, I shouldn't say that, he's using this Old Testament-inspired phrase to drive home that this is not insignificant to God. You know, it's, it's that old stupid saying, well, with God, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. No, <laughs> God is forgiving. His forgiveness knows no bounds. But liberty in Christ doesn't mean autonomy in Christ. You do whatever you want. It's not licentious living. It's living within the boundaries God has set for our good. And so Paul is driving home, and it's really, it is really fascinating how he does this. This is not what the walk of love looks like, verses 3 through six. This isn't what it looks like. And see, he doesn't always do that, but he chooses here to use negative example. This is not what I'm talking about. But as I've said now several times, these vices, these characteristic traits were very, very familiar to the people of Ephesus. This characterized the Greco-Roman world. And I like this idea. The church by itself, 
in and of itself, and what God is calling, is a countercultural institution. We do not run with the culture. We actually do go against the culture. And these illustrations, um, that, or I should say, really these vices that Paul is using, really illustrate that. All right, I want to move on to the next characteristic of our walk. Sound doctrine produces godly living. But any final question? It's short. It's only six verses, but it's, it's quite, quite penetrating, I think. And its application is as powerful today in 2021 as it was when Paul wrote this letter. Jim, I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, it seems as though you know, sin is sin, but it seems like some of these sins are more addictive and tend to take one, uh, take a person away, further away from the Lord. Uh, and the possibility of coming to Christ, although that can happen anytime. But can you comment on that? Like, because there's a number of verses here that are devoted to this. And while sin is sin, this may be more egregious and more um, controlling in a person's life. Well, I think... um especially the uh, first two uh, in verse three, there is always a scandalous dimension of sexual immorality, whatever the specifics. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, the term there for immorality is pointing It's a very, very broad term. And anything outside of heterosexual marriage is, is in that term. But I think we all would agree that there is a scandalous nature to sexual immorality, and there is an addictive nature to sexual immorality. Um, And therefore, number one, it is something that can keep a person from coming to Christ. But because Paul is writing to believers here, and that's the important point to remember, this is addressed to believers, not unbelievers. A, a lifestyle of sexual immorality, which is the height of selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-indulgence, will keep you from walking in love, which is the governing command of this paragraph. Walk in love, verse 2. And so the Ephesians were familiar with this. The Ephesians lived in a, in a city saturated with this, and they are coming out of this, and they need to understand, this is why Paul's doing it, this scandalous, addictive lifestyle will keep you from walking in love. And the aspect of covetousness, which, as I argued a little earlier, is is very much uh, throughout the Bible. It is a, the Tenth Commandment, and it is used again and again and again as the symbolic center of God's call to holiness of motivation, why you do what you do. That's what God is interested in, see the example of the Sermon on the Mount. And this, too, is something Jesus Christ frees us from this when we come to salvation. But if you are in a highly materialistic culture where the worth and value of someone is measured by the toys they have, then this is going to be an issue you will struggle with. It is not characteristic of the walk of love. So because he's writing to believers, these aren't things that will keep you from coming to Christ. These are things that will 
will be detrimental to your walk of love, which he's calling us to. And they are the things that when people come to Jesus Christ, uh, I've worked with a number of men over the years, where all of these things that we've talked about are very much a struggle for each one of them for a variety of reasons and a lot of things that are characterized of life. This is the baggage they bring. But now Jesus is saying to them, Ephesians 2, 4, 22 through 24, put this off, renew your mind, put on the new. And so these are the things that characterize your old. They don't characterize you anymore. And they are diametrically opposed to the walk of love. <clears throat> Thank All you. All right, good. Anything else? before we move on to the next one. My goodness, it's 25 to 12 already. All right, I've given you this, and if you, you have a copy of this um, in, in the packet that was sent out last week. So again, back to our chart, sound doctrine produces godly living. And the fourth of the five that are characteristic of these last three chapters is the walk, is walking in the light. Again, that's a figure of speech, a metaphor, but look at how uh, the Apostle Paul sets this up. Now, there is a strong connection now between verse 6, these things, um, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore, so this connects with verse 6, therefore do not become partners, literally sharers with them, those who are mentioned in the previous paragraph on those vices. Why? Again, it's a gar reason. Why? Because at one time, you were in darkness. Now, again, he's writing to believers in the church at Ephesus. And that's right. At one time, you were in darkness. You were part of the kingdom of darkness. Think of Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 13. That Jesus, when you put your faith in him, he transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. That's what the Heavenly Father does. And darkness is always the realm of the unregenerate, always the realm of the rebellious. You used to be there. That's what you used to be. You were a citizen of that kingdom. You were characterized by that lifestyle. But now... Note the time contrast, at one time, but now, this is your position. This is how God looks at you. And if this is how God looks at you, this is how you are to look at you. But now, you are light in the Lord. Now, let's, let's think about that for just a minute, because this metaphor of contrasting dark and light, darkness and light, permeates the Bible. You see it in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1. There was darkness. God says, let there be light. And I mean, I don't need to explain all that. You know what I'm talking about. But let's think about darkness. There is something just innately giving the perception of evil, the Bible says that deeds are done in darkness by evil men and evil women. Darkness, darkness hides the truth. Darkness deceives because you don't understand everything. You can't see everything. Darkness is inhibiting. 
Darkness, darkness can hurt you. And I mean, you can just work that metaphor out for all you can do. But what does light do? Light exposes darkness. Light triumphs over darkness. Light overcomes darkness. Light, you see everything. And there's, for that reason, you see this particularly in the Psalms, light is always associated with truth. Darkness is always associated with deception, distortion, dysfunction, and evil. And who is the head of the kingdom of darkness? Satan. Jesus said he's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of all lies. He's the great deceiver. He is the serpent of old, Revelation 12, 9. He is the one who deceived Eve. And he could go on and on and on. And as Paul is saying here, you used to be that. Now you're this. And so that's positional truth. So now the command, this is where we get our next outline point. Walk as children of light. There's our new walk. We walk in holiness. We walk in love. We walk in light. And remember what the Lord Jesus said, it fully unpacked for us in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And remember something, too, in Matthew chapter 5. After Jesus taught the Beatitudes, it's about verse 15, 16, I think. Jesus says, you are the soul of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I always find that amazing, quite frankly, where Jesus has said in his teachings, I am the light of the world. Now he looks at us and says, you are the light of the world. Because he's going back to the Father. He's going to finish his work, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so now, now who's representing him? Who's the light now? We are. We are the light of the world. And so I really believe that when Paul wrote this, and we're studying right now, when Paul wrote this, he had very much in his mind what Jesus had said. He had very much in his mind the things that Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, in his teaching, when he said, I'm the light of the world, etc. Now he says, walk as children of the light. For, and and most of your translations probably have this in a parenthesis, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, true. Now, every one of those terms, good, right, and true, are ethical terms. Every one of those terms describes the characteristics of a walk of light. And so, Paul, and and I I guess it's, or I don't know if I would put a parenthesis around it, but ESV, that's translation I'm using, does. Because I think it, it enhances, it enhances the power of the term or the metaphor light. You will know light when you see these three things, what is good, what is right, that's a standard, and what is true. And so Paul is saying, this now characterizes you. Okay, Paul, we're to walk in the light. Our position is we're now in the kingdom of light. We used to be in darkness, now we're in the kingdom of light. Okay, what does that look like? Very broad terms. It's going to be what is good, agathos. It's going to be what is right, the standard. 
and it's going to be true. Who is truth? Jesus says in John 17, as he's praying to the Heavenly Father, your word is truth. I have given them your truth. King David, when he's writing in Psalm 119, that very long meditation on the word of God, he says, oh God, your word is truth. You are truth. So truth is an inherent attribute of God. And therefore, light is associated with truth. There's no false, deceptive, distorting error. What God says is true, and what you and I say and live is true. And of course, then in back of all of this (laughs) is that the Scriptures— which is God's verbal revelation to humanity, the scriptures are a very important source for understanding what is good, what is right, and what is true. You don't decide what's good and then live by it. You don't decide what standard of right and live by it. You don't decide what's true and then form your standard and live by it. Those standards are set in God's revelation to us because that's light. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. So as we learn who he is, find out what he's doing, find out how we fit into his program, and we begin to understand all there is in the 66 books of the Bible, that becomes the source for what is good, what is right, and what is true. You don't find out what is good, right, and true by reading the newspaper. You don't find out what is good, right, and true by watching Fox News or MSNBC or whatever you guys watch. You don't find out what is good, right, and true by asking your neighbor. And I could just keep filling in the blank. It is God who is the light of the world, Jesus said, is the source of what is good, right, and true. And so this is really quite profound. And you and I, that's why I tried to unpack this and give a lot more input and detail to this. That is why, at least I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why you would come to a class like this. You want to understand what God has revealed to us. You want to understand how I apply to my life what God has revealed to us. I want to be engaged in the process of walking in loving obedience with the one who saved me. I want to be active in my passion. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. Well, that's what happens as you study the Word of God. And then he says something else. So first of all, walk as children of the light. And then try, in verse 10 now, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We've seen that several times in the book of Ephesians what is pleasing to the Lord. And so he chooses to use the verb discern. Um, What what does that mean, to discern, to, to, to figure out, to understand, to be able to gain insight into the consequences of my choices, what is pleasing to the Lord. And this this particular infinitive, to discern, 
reminds us that we are responsible in our freedom. We are responsible. I don't like to use the word free will. It's not in the Bible, but I'll use it here. We are responsible in how we exercise our free will because God gives us a degree of freedom. We are not robots. <laughs> We're not automatons. Even in the sanctifying grace and process of being conformed to the image of Jesus, every morning we have to wake up and choose. How am I going to start my day? How am I going to commit my day? What am I going to do with this? How am I going to process this? How am I going to work through this issue? How am I going to seek to solve that? What Paul is saying, an axiom of your life is, as you grow in Christ, as you grow in your understanding what is good, what is right, and what is true, you begin, now listen very carefully to this, you begin to gain insight into the consequences of your choices. And as you gain insight into the consequences of your choices, you discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You are called to a walk of light Light exposes darkness. Light triumphs over darkness. You used to be in darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of light. You follow new standards, what is good, what is right, what is true. And you are beginning to discern insight into the consequences of your choices of what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's why, I mean, just think of this chronologically. A five-year-old child has no discernment. A five-year-old child just acts. <laughs> I mean, they don't discern. They don't think through much. I mean, you I mean, push it back even a little earlier. A three-year-old, they have no discernment whatsoever. But you would hope a 25-year-old has discernment. And you would, let's switch it now to the spiritual life. A person who's walked with the Lord Jesus for 20 years should have a greater level of discernment than someone who came to the Lord Jesus last week in faith. And so Paul is, it, it, to me, this is really powerful here. As we have a new standard as citizens of the kingdom of light, that which is good, that which is right, which is true, we're beginning to gain insight into the consequences of our choices that we have to make every day so that it's pleasing to the Lord. So take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness. Okay, that's a given. But instead expose them. So notice the capstone now. You have a, you're a kingdom of light. You, you, are, you are walking in the light. Standards are good, right, and true. You're learning the discipline of discernment. Insight into the consequences of your choices, what is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And as you live like that, you expose darkness for what it is. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, you are the light of the world? You don't even necessarily have to say anything, but you expose darkness for what it is by your lifestyle by the choices you make, by the language you use, by your priorities, by your stewardship. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. 
Because if we're walking in the light, let me go back to a figure of speech I was using in the last paragraph. By nature, Christians are countercultural. We are not running with the culture. In many areas, we're running against the culture. And the further, well, let me use distance here, the farther culture gets away from what is good, right, and true to the Lord, the more you and I are going to be countercultural. <laughs> because the cleavage between our choices and our lifestyle and, the, and that of the, the broader culture is going to be wider and wider and wider and wider and wider. And I think all of you would agree in 2021, that cleavage is quite wide. <laughs> and so th this, I really love this paragraph because this is so relevant to where we are today in 2021. Because this, this contrast between darkness and light is more pronounced. It, it's more pronounced in my lifetime than it's ever been. I'm 73 years old. I have never seen it the way it is now. Never. That, that separation, that cleavage, that distance is much greater than it used to be. And, it, and until and unless there is an enormous renewal spiritually in American civilization, it's going to get worse. And don't expect it to get better by a bunch of laws being passed by the government in the state, in Lincoln, or city council, or in Washington, D.C. That's not going to solve the problem. The problem is spiritual. And that's the whole point Paul is making. And so that, that being light of the world, which is what he's been talking about, and keying in off what Jesus said, we then expose by just how we live, darkness for what it is. And then he just adds, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. And secret is, of course, deeds done in darkness. And, and not necessarily, you know, the lights are turned off, but in the sense that the kingdom of darkness which is deceiving, dysfunctional, distorting, and self-destructive. And that, okay, the Ephesians, when they read this after Paul wrote the letter, oh yeah, we know what he's talking about. It is, we used to be a part of that, but not anymore. And those shameful things that used to be done. All right, now I, I want to, what time is it? Um, oh my, okay, I guess I'm out of time. Because I, I, want to, I want to segue from verse 13 into verse 14, where the Apostle Paul quotes, he combines a number of phrases from the book of Isaiah. And so I want to segue into that, and why does he do that, and why does he quote from this, and what does that quote mean? It's, we have a minute and a half before class ends, so I don't really think I can do this. I'm going to save that for next week. I'm going to start with verse 13. Russ, Glenn... Bill, Rob, you all remind me verse 13, okay? Don't let me forget. I start on verse 13. But I have about a minute here before we break. Are there any questions on this quite wonderful exposition of Paul on being and walking in the light? It's just wonderful how he does this. Has everybody got it? Yeah, I just think quickly... Um... The Holy Spirit um, helps us in this regard, doesn't it, Jim? 
Well, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't know how to answer that other than yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, we're going to be seeing in the next passage, uh, next paragraph, I should say, where walk, the walk of wisdom, the key there is going to be in verse 18, where we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, everybody else okay? All right, so all four of you, verse 13, got that? God will hold you, God will hold you accountable if you forget that. And I will too. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, it's about a quarter of, I think I'll pray then, because I, I need to get to my next uh, meeting. But I uh, hope you have uh, been blessed by these two passages, especially this one here, Walking in the Light. This is quite powerful for you and me, because the metaphor of light and darkness is very evident to us in American civilization today. We really see that. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for, as Jesus taught in John 16, you guide us, you teach us, you empower us, and then 1 Corinthians 2 helps us to see You not only enable us to understand the text that we study, you also enable us to welcome and embrace the truth that's there. How gracious you are, God. Thank you that we who used to be citizens of the kingdom of darkness have been transferred into the kingdom of light, where there's a new standard, the standards of what is good, right, and true. You're helping us to learn that wonderful, wonderful, task of discernment, where we we are learning what it means to gain insight into the consequences of our choices. And as we choose those that are good and right and true, it's pleasing to you. And as we live this transformed lifestyle, as our words, our speech, our actions are transformed, we begin to expose darkness for what it is. It's deceiving. It's deceptive. It's, it's dysfunctional, it's distorting, and it is ultimately self-destructive. Thank you for rescuing us from that. Thank you that our position is we're now citizens of the kingdom of light. We are your children, and we are, as we studied in the previous paragraph, we are to imitate you, our Heavenly Father, by walking in love. Help us to be the, the active pursuers of that which is pleasing to you, to be walking in loving obedience with you. And we ask your enablement and power and blessing as we do so. Thank you for these men. Give them special enablement today. Help them to be strong, strong men of faith who represent you well in this dark world. I trust them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.